Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And there it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Now, Paul here says that he is a doulos. Now, it says servant in most of your translations, but literally, doulos is a slave. It's one owned by another. For you see, Jesus has paid for the Apostle Paul, and Jesus has paid the price for you and I. So Paul is a doulos of Christ and called to be an apostle. Now this morning, if you've ever wondered, what is the gospel? The Apostle Paul is going to give us the answer to what the gospel is. He's going to lay out exactly what the gospel of God is in verses 1 through 6 that we'll look at. Paul is set apart, he says here, for the euangelion theou. Euangelion is the word for gospel. You might hear in its sound in the Greek, euangelion, that when it comes over and becomes anglicized, we get the word evangelism, evangel. When we evangelize people, we gospelize them. So euangelion theou is the gospel of God. The gospel of God. It is the announcement of the reign of the Christ, and thus gospel is good news. Going on to verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now what I want you to notice here is in these first six verses, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us that he's talking about the gospel of God, and then he's going to give us the content of the gospel. And know that, notice that it's much broader than how people get saved. The gospel we see here in verse 2 is the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom, and it was promised in the Old Testament. In fact, in some sense, we could say that the entirety of the scripture is about the gospel. It's the gospel announced beforehand and prophesied, and then it is the gospel fulfilled and carried out and executed promised in the Old Testament. How was it promised? Well, think back at the beginning, after the fall, and God comes and begins to place curses on his creation, upon the woman, upon the man, and upon the serpent. And he says this in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. It's known as the proto-evangel, the pre-evangel. Why? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You can also translate this as, He shall crush your head, serpent, though you bruise his heel. So already there's a promise of a coming one. Someone's coming who will have his heel bruised, as it were, who will crush the serpent's head right there in Genesis chapter 3. Let's get some more content filled in on the gospel. We come up to Genesis chapter 49. We see that Jacob's got his 12 sons and he's giving forth his blessings. And he comes to his son Judah and he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. All the way back there in Genesis chapter 49, things are beginning to crystallize. They're going to focus in on the tribe of Judah. Out of the tribes of Israel, even in the arrangement of their camp, and later on, their placement in the land with the capital city of Jerusalem is going to be in the midst 
of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah is going to be where the king comes from, the royal tribe. Passing on further through the Old Testament, we look at a text that we looked at this morning here, one we normally access during the time of Advent and Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. More crystallization and specialization and bringing into focus on whom this deliverer will be. He's going to come forth from the tribe of Judah. And then we read these words in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, here we have a crystallization from the tribe of Judah of one who's going to be born as a child, who's going to come forth as a son, and the government's going to be upon his shoulders, and then we have these mysterious titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is promised beforehand through the prophets of the Holy Scripture, says the Apostle Paul, going on to Romans chapter 1, verse 3 concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. The king was the son of David, the prophesied Messiah. He was a man from David's line. Now finishing off the prophecy of Isaiah that we saw there in Isaiah 9-6, in verse 7 it says this, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The promised one's going to come. He's going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to come down through the line of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be born to us as a child. The government's going to rest upon his shoulders. But he's going to have these mysterious titles that tell us that he's something more than a simple mortal. He's going to come forth in the line of David. And it would have seemed an impossibility. Friends, if you look at the kingdom of David and Solomon, and when it fragments into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah, Judah had one after the other, always from the line of David kings. And then it seemed like it went extinct. When the Babylonians come and carry off the remnant of Israel into captivity in Babylon, what happened? And yet, like a thin strand, like a spider's web, the line of David goes on, reemerges after the exile was Zerubbabel, carries on as you look at the genealogy of the Christ down through Joseph. He will come forth from the throne of David, and upon it he will sit forever and ever and reign over the nations back to Romans chapter 1 verse 4 and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord now remember we're talking about the content of the gospel of God it's including all these things the gospel announces Jesus was more than a man and that he resurrected from the dead. Notice the apostle Paul as he's speaking about the gospel of God. His focus is upon the resurrection. It's at the cross where Jesus pays for our sin. It's at the cross where Jesus pays the price to bring restoration to the cosmos. 
It's at the cross where Jesus pays to bring the price, to reverse the curse. But it's at the resurrection when he rises from the tomb and rises from the dead. 100% God and 100% man glorified. It's his vindication. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Jesus didn't just die on the cross to reverse the curse He also rose from the dead and ascended to heaven for our future glory. Can I hear an amen to that? Going on to chapter 1 and verse 5 of Romans. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you see what the Apostle Paul has done and said? He said, the gospel of God. And it's the announcement to the nations that the Christ was coming forth through the Old Testament prophets, that he's come in time upon the throne of David, that he's risen from the dead, and now that's how we're saved. You see, how we get saved is part of the gospel, but it's not the fullness of the gospel. The gospel is the announcement of the reign and rule of the Christ, and within that we find our salvation and our place as those who call the nations to join the kingdom. Through Jesus we have received grace, unmerited favor, and apostleship for a purpose. And our high calling is to call the nations to Jesus to obey and serve him. You may notice this morning that our gospel lesson in the threefold reading was drawn for the Great Commission. Why? Because the Great Commission is us gospelizing the nations. It is Jesus' command for us to gospelize the nations. In fact, I want to remind you of this. When we get to Advent, for that six-month period known as the proper seasons, from Advent up to Trinity Sunday, your charge each week is going to be from the Great Commission. Be reminded as those words are read to you, it's sending you out at the end of the service, that they're not just vacuous words, but they are your charge as the people of God. They are your charge as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And when Jesus had risen from the dead and was preparing to ascend, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Can I hear an amen to that? Nobody else in this world has that command except the people of God. Nobody else in the world is deputized like you and I are as ambassadors of the King and the Kingdom. Nobody else in the world is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to go out of these doors and to call the nations into obedience and to come join the feast that is the kingdom of God. Going on to Romans chapter 1, verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the incredible boldness here. You read this and you just look at it as a historical anomaly. We read this as a historical record or interesting story. We look at this as a letter written to people that have long passed on, but it is filled with incredible boldness. The Apostle Paul is declaring into Rome the most powerful state and empire on the face of the earth at the moment in which he's saying these words, that Jesus is Lord. 
that the nations owe him and not Caesar obedience. In fact, the favored ones in Rome aren't the pagans, but rather are the Christians. The favored ones in Austin and Central Texas are not the secularists outside those doors, but they are you and I. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ scattered in congregations across this region this morning. In fact, so early here, within a couple of decades, there's already a church in Rome after the resurrection, and tradition holds that it was established by Peter. Going on to verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul is thankful that already, within 20 years of the resurrection and the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost, the faith is firmly established and flourishing in the city of Rome itself. You know, it's interesting, if you look at the book of Colossians, you'll see that there's already converts within the household of Caesar. If you look at the trajectory of the book of Acts and you look at Paul's epistles, you can see that his singular drive in life is, I'm going to go to Rome, and by God's grace I will stand before Caesar and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are lords in this world, and indeed Caesar is a powerful lord, but every lord, every president, every king needs to recognize that he finds his place under the lordship of Jesus the Christ. So they're blessed. They're firmly established in Rome, and as N.T. Wright says, they're right under Caesar's nose. This morning, as we sit here, the church is firmly established in Beijing, right under the Communist Party's godless nose. This very morning, the church is firmly established in Tehran, right under the mullah's oppressive nose. Going on to verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This is the way it has always been with believers. We mutually bless one another. Now it's time for Pastor Crawl to get up on his vacation soapbox. Got one more week here before school begins, and I'm sure everybody's getting ready to skedaddle on that final opportunity for vacation kids listen up i want to tell you this go to church on vacation find a church where you're at and go to church bless and be blessed by another congregation going on to verse 13 i do not want you to be unaware brothers that i have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that i might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the gentiles I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. Everything happens in God's perfect timing. So seek to know God's timing in your life. Seek to know God's timing with your work. Seek to know God's timing with your schooling or your children's schooling. Seek to know God's timing in finding a spouse. Seek to know God's timing in preaching the gospel. Now, you may notice here that he's under obligation to both the Greeks and the barbarians. Everyone is a barbarian to you. You know, it's hilarious what the term barbarian means. 
You know, if you're black, you think ancient white people are barbarians. If you're white, you, you think Mongols are barbarians. You know, almost everybody's word in all the languages across the world for foreigner translates back originally to barbarian. Why? Because that's how we think as sinners. We're the human beings. We're the civilized ones. Everybody else is barbarians. In Japanese, the word for foreigner is gaijin, which translates out etymologically to barbarians. White people are barbarians to non-white people. Non-white people think white people are barbarians. The next tribe over is barbarians. One day there will be no barbarians for all the nations, all peoples of every race and ethnicity shall submit as servants to the Lord Jesus the Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? And we're in the middle of that. That's pretty cool. Imagine if you're sitting in that upper room at Pentecost, you'd look around and see 120, and there's the kingdom of God. But now we look across the world from one end to the other, from far-flung islands to the far reaches of the polar ice caps, and we see that the kingdom of God has expanded to billions of people. Going on to verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul was eager to spread the gospel. With much danger, with cultural opposition, with many hard-held religious obstacles, Paul was eager to preach the gospel. And friends, I've got a question for you this morning here in Central Texas. Are you eager to preach the gospel in our time and place? Are you eager to preach the gospel in our time and place? Including you kids, you should be. We live in a time of vast ignorance where our talking heads like the great theologian Don Lemon declare things like Jesus Christ if that's who you believe in Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth that is a total lack of gospel clarity for all to see and hear Paul on the other hand says that this Jesus with total gospel clarity was absolutely perfect in all he did Jesus perfectly fulfilled the prophets Jesus was perfectly descended from David Jesus lived and died perfectly and perfectly rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is perfectly living as he brings the nations into obedience under his perfect and glorious reign and rule. This morning we've seen in Romans chapter 1, gospel clarity. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that it encompasses all things and all nations. We pray that you'd bless us to rejoice in it, but we pray that you would also empower us to spread it in our time and place. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.